HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, we have a great show for you today. We have in the studio Philippe Esome, um, who around town in New York, at least, and uh, we all refer to as uh, very affectionately as Fifi, uh, formerly of the Ten Bells and Passage de la Flore. Uh, Fifi has uh, recently started importing um, some great natural wines, uh, and uh, just Fifi, really excited to have you in the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, Ten Bells is definitely, uh, you know, was one of the the great wine bars. Uh, still, is, still is open uh, in the, in the city. I think anyone, you know, you'll always find industry people there, winemakers, writers, sommeliers. Um, I think one of the one of those must stop by places, and you come to New York along with uh, with terroir, and hopefully some people think of Amphora in the same uh, the same light. Uh, but Fifi, when we when we uh, start the show, we always like to talk about uh, just one wine that was really memorable. Uh, from the last week, um, so I'm going to get started, and you can you can kind of think about it. I know it's a little early for uh, rosé season. It is uh, it is cold as ice wine here in New York. It is freezing, um, but I had an outstanding rosé. I think it, perhaps my favorite rosé in the world. Um, it was the Valentini Cerasuolo. Um, uh, last week I was in Abruzzo and I visited the town of Loreto Aprutino, which is where uh, Valentini is located, also Torre de Beati, and another great producer known as De Fermo is not imported. Um, and this Valentini Cherisuolo made from all Montepulciano grapes uh, is one of the most beguiling, weird, interesting, exciting, unique wines in the world, much less uh, rosé wines. And it is uh, it's fuller-bodied, um, and, uh, and I absolutely love it. And even on a colder night... Uh, it was uh, a, a really great companion uh, to food. Um, so 
check out the Valentini Cherisuolo. But how about you? Uh, what have you had in the last in the last week or so that that's been truly memorable for you? Uh, last week, I um, I just got a shipment that arrived from a new producer from the Jura, uh, domaine called Les Bottes Rouges, uh, from a guy called Jean Baptiste Menigos in the Arbois Appellation. It's uh, sort of his second official vintage. Uh, he started in 2012. So the 13 just arrived. He, um, we, we got three wines from him. We got a Trousseau, a Pinot Noir, and a Chardonnay. And the Chardonnay is just crazy, outstanding. Um, the, the, the freshness, the minerality, the fruit, um, everything is really super in balance. Um, for 2013, which is definitely a very rough vintage for uh, quite some region in France, especially in uh, in the Jura, uh, you managed to get something really, really awesome. Awesome. And this is a, a producer that you're importing? Yes. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, I, I'll have to look out for that one. That's uh, a producer I'm not familiar with, um, but it seems like uh, you know there, there's more and more great producers coming out of the Jura that... Uh, that we're, we're, we don't have here yet in the States, and then uh, all of a sudden, like, whoa, that they're, they're really outstanding quality. They, yeah, I, I mean, nowadays, um, there's a lot of producers working um, organically mm-hmm. in, in the Jura, and uh, we, we definitely now have uh, the ability, especially here in New York, which is, you know, the biggest platform for, for wine in the, in the U.S., and, um, and a lot of Importers have been focusing on the Jura, and um, we, we have a huge offering here in New York. The, the main issue is that basically those guys are very small operations, mm-hmm. so the quantities are super low. Um, so especially with the 2013 vintage that are the one arriving now, and but you, you, we can definitely find everything between you know Selection Massal and Zev. Uh, all these guys have been working now with tons of small importers so small wineries sorry mm-hmm. um, that are really outstanding yeah absolutely and uh and even surprisingly rosenthal has uh, uh Poufine and gaye which i think are make beautiful wines as well gaye is good really good um so i was reading your bio preparing for the show and uh something struck me i was i was surprised uh, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this story um i didn't realize that when you came to new york um, your thought was not to work with wine, uh, but perhaps to work in the cocktail world. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know anything about wine when I came to New York, actually. And uh, I, I was working in, the, in, in, the, in a restaurant in Paris, and uh, I was always interested into making mix and kind of invent or create cocktails or mix flavors or, or anything of that sort. And coming to New York, the big... I don't say I don't know if I can say the big dream, but definitely the big idea was to become what we call here a mixologist. And what were your guests asking for when you were working in Paris? Well, that was the the classic. People would ask, you know, for um, uh, gin and tonic, you know, rum and coke, um, whiskey and soda. And my, my answer was that for the same price, you know, we could do anything more innovative and more and more fun. So that's where the the idea of doing cocktails kind of uh, got started. Yeah, I mean, it blows my mind that like fifteen, twenty years ago, like there was someone in Paris who was like, you know, the Parisians are really behind the times with gastronomy. I've got to go to America. <laughs> I got to go to New York. <laughs> I got to go to New York. <laughs> um, but that's exciting. So you got to New York, and did you find a great cocktail bar that to work at, or what? What, what happened? 
Well, that's how everything uh, shifted since almost day one. So I got to New York, and um, the first job that I found was in a French bistro. Um, I, I was illegal at the time, so obviously French um, French bistro or restaurant was the best option. And uh, the first restaurant I was working at was Le Bateau Ivre uh, in Midtown, and it's a wine and beer only. So I, I started to bartend there, and uh, from from the first day on, I had to learn about French wine, which I didn't know much. I'm from Burgundy, so I would recognize some names from Burgundy um, wines, but other than that, I had no clue. Like, I, I remember one of the first order when the ticket came out of the computer, um, the order was for a bottle of Lirac, and I had to ask, where's Lirac? I had no, no clue what region that one was coming from. Mm-hmm. So that's where I start really learning about more the region and appellations in, uh, in France. And did, was that something you took on yourself or was there a sommelier who was there who was trying to help you out with that? There was, there was no sommelier, but there was um, definitely a couple of managers mm-hmm. who knew a little bit more. So I would you know, ask a few questions and, uh, and try to figure out by myself uh, a little bit about the list. The, the wine list was kind of big. There was about 280 wines. There was 100 by the glass. So that was definitely a good point to start for me to taste all these wines, even though they're not the kind of one I'm drinking now. But that was definitely a, a good starting point to be able to taste all these different wines. And so the wines that you're drinking now are, how are they different from what you were drinking back then? Well, I, I got myself into uh, natural wines um, through mainly a guy uh, called Arnaud Erhardt. Um, which was very known in New York for having a restaurant in a Red Hook called 360 that was serving one of the best meals in town ever for the cheapest price ever. And the wine list was all about natural wine. Um, so I would go there at least once a week and uh, I would taste the wine that I couldn't understand at the time. And it took me quite a while until one day uh, one wine struck me and... Uh, I and, and awakened my curiosity about the natural wine and why all these flavors, all these aromas, all these complexities that I didn't have in other wines that I was not interested in anyway. What was that wine? <laughs> it was... Uh, <laughs> it, you can't it, just leave us hanging like that. <laughs> it, it was a, a Morgon Côte de Pie from uh, Jean Foyard. It's from Jean Foyard. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I know a bunch of, of people who had that same... Uh, that same thing with that same wine. With that same wine. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's amazing how uh, a single wine, um, you know, there's so many people in, in our industry who remember a single wine that they're like, all right, that's it. I've got to work with, I've got to surround myself with wine of a certain style. That's, this is what I'm going to do now because it's so, uh, it was such a strong and emotional reaction. It is. It was. And it still is. And so what was, your, what was your next step from, from there? So the next step from there, at the time I was running a little French bistro in the Lower East Side mm-hmm. that was called Le Père Pinard. Same thing that has only wine and beer license. And uh, so at, at the time I was taking care of the wine program and the only concern that I had was to buy as cheap as possible and to sell at the highest price as I could. And um, as soon as I got into the natural wine, I was pretty much decided to change the, the wine list over there. So 
I, I did it really gradually. You know, I, I put two wine, two natural wines on the list, and then three and five and then ten, and rapidly uh, we got about sixty, sixty-five natural wines on the list out of seventy that was on the on that list. Wow. And did your clientele notice? Did they care, or they or they, they interested? They, they did notice. I mean, I was I was definitely super enthusiastic, and and I was trying to spread the word. So, um, one of the thing was definitely to crack bottles and make people try the, the wines, and try to explain them what was done, what was the difference. Um, that that was a very um, interesting and thrilling experience. Yeah. And then how did Ten Bells happen? I mean, Ten Bells is really iconic place in uh, New York drinking, uh, known as the, the best, one of the best wine bars in New York City, the best natural wine bar in the country. Uh, how, did, how did this happen? Um, how it happens? Well, I, I was, as I was working for, um, for Le Perpignan, uh, the owner at one point offered me to do something together. And uh, the, the question was very open. He just asked me, well, what is it that you want to do? And um, there's one thing that I had in mind, as on each of my trips to France, going to Paris, I would go to Le Vervolé. Great um, natural wine bar in the... Great eight, natural wine bar. In Paris, yeah. Uh, the 10th. The 10th. Yeah. Okay. And the idea was uh, to make something in that kind of format, uh, meaning like very simple... Um, kitchen not 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 too much think complicated things but just working with very good ingredient very simple and definitely being a wine bar and not a restaurant pouring wine, natural wines but a wine bar that the wine would be the focus uh, of the of the other place and so we looked around the the first idea was to open in um, in Brooklyn because uh, I was we were quite tired of the lorry side at the time and um, so we were looking in Williamsburg to find a spot, and an opportunity came up on uh, in the Lower East Side, and we jumped on it, and uh, and we did it. In two thousand eight, we opened. Boy, did you ever do it! You did a, a just a fantastic, uh, fantastic job. Um, and what were some of the early? Was this something that was embraced right away, or some of the early challenges? It was embraced right away. Yeah, I mean, I can't ever remember not being at Ten Bells and it being quiet. It's it was all not, you know, it, it's dimly lit. It feels like there's lots of um, kind of nooks, but there's always people there. It was always uh, a, a popular place. Yeah, uh, especially at the beginning, the space was way smaller than it is now. Mm-hmm. We just had the front room at the beginning, so there was like thirty six seats, so very easy to fill. And, and from the first day, the, the day we opened, obviously we were not ready. The menu was not on the board. Uh, we didn't have prices uh, set up. It was a real mess. And the first night was like crazy busy. And, and it went on since. So it, it was really a thrilling, super exciting um, to, to open that place. Yes. Really exciting. And then... Uh Eventually, time came and you, and you left and started your own uh, wine store, uh, pretty close to actually pretty close to where I live in uh, in Brooklyn on Vanderbilt called Passage de la Flore. Yeah, so the the whole idea it's um, during the um, the Ten Bells uh, period. I um, th- there was a bunch of wine that I was interested in, but that were not imported. So um, thanks to David Lilly from Chamber Street Wine, I um, figured how. 
um, I would be able to import some wines that I would just have at 10 bells for the, for the customers. And um, a bunch of people would come drink these wines and would ask the question, where, where, where can we buy the wines? And the answer, because of New York laws, was, well, nowhere, because if you are an on-premise, you cannot do retail. So pretty rapidly, the idea of having a shop uh, was born. The idea would have been to open the shop right across from, the, from 10 bells. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. And years later, I had this opportunity uh, with that little, um, that little spot in, uh, in Prospect Heights. And that's how uh, Passage de la Fleur was open. Great. And now you have uh, Veronica Stollers working there. Veronica yep. was one of uh, Pascaline's wine team over at, at Rouge Tomat. She is just outstanding. Uh, she's awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. So definitely go say hi to, hi to her. Um, and so now you, you've kind of separated your, uh, your involvement with the shop and really focusing on the importing. Exactly. Um, as, um, I, I, I loved the shop a lot. I loved it. Um, the thing is that being in 280 square feet, about 60 hours a week, uh, was great. But after a, a little, uh, a, about a year... I, I have ants in my pants. And I mean, I, I can I understand that. Some... I love going into the shop, and I love that it's small, and you know that every wine there is going to be good because there only, there's only room for a couple hundred, 200 wines or so, right? About. Yeah, so you know that every wine's going to be good, but I can imagine like, getting, you know, looking at the same four walls. Getting around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I, I was... Uh, and then the, the idea was back as I've been offered f- for a few years to do distribution mm. that I already always refused and and I was, and I thought that at that point that was the uh, the way to go. The way to go. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to hear uh, all about Fifi's ventures in importing and distribution after a short break. This one's called Manufactured Consent by Mamarazzi. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. you by visitnapavalley.com. Welcome to the Napa Valley, North America's legendary wine and food capital, where the art of living well is defined and each season holds a story waiting to be discovered. Life feels slower here, lived at a place where tables are set with care. Fine wine and food are created from the bounty of our own vineyards and gardens, and relationships with friends and family gathered around the table are somehow sweeter. When planning a trip to the Napa Valley, we invite you to visit the destination's official visitor website, visitnapavalley.com, 
or stop by Napa County's official visitor information center, located in downtown Napa, where our friendly and knowledgeable community ambassadors can assist you in creating your own legendary Napa Valley experiences. The Visitor Information Center is located at 600 Main Street, Napa, and is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, 360 days a year. Your invitation to experience the Napa Valley beckons. Take a deep breath, lose yourself in our quiet green and golden hills, renew your body and spirit, taste our legendary wines and cuisine, and experience the people who make this valley like no other in the world. For more information, go to visitnapavalley.com. All right, we're back with Philippe Essome, uh, lovingly known as Fifi, um, here in the studio with us today. And um, we were just about to start a conversation about Fifi's importing business. Um, has been doing it for uh, several years with with wines that originally showed up on his list at Ten Bells, and then um, some of the wines at the retail store. Passage de la Fleur, which uh, which is still around, uh, it is just a great shop, and you should visit. And you can you can certainly buy um, some of Fifi's all natural wines there. Um, but Fifi, tell us about the the producers that uh, that you're working with. How did you find them initially, and um, is it is it all focused on French producers, or where uh, um, wh- where else in the world are you exploring? Um, so well, right, right now the, the the portfolio is definitely a French at ninety nine point nine percent. I have uh, some Italian wines. You have Italian wines. It's on the way. Great. It's something pretty new. Uh, a nice uh, organic Petnat Prosecco. Uh, but now that's w- a Prosecco I could get behind. I mean, we, so we don't kind of as a rule don't have Prosecco at the at, at my restaurants. Not because I hate it, but because I feel like. Uh, People might order it without thinking about it, and they, there could be more interesting wines. But a pet nap prosecco—that's pretty cool. I know a couple others around, but yeah, that's that, pretty special. It, it's really—it's really special. And uh, I, I, the, the winery got in touch with me because they were looking for an importer, so I was uh, thrilled about that. And um, I, I tasted it, and I really loved it. So I, I gave it a go. Yeah. During the break, you were telling me that these guys. Uh, have 10 acres of organic vineyards, and then they're trying to convert a huge vineyard to... They have, yeah, the whole winery is 160 hectares. 160 hectares. Yeah, and so they have right now 10 hectares um, that are um, grown organically uh, grapes for the Prosecco. Yes. It's been so for five years now, and they are in the process of converting the whole rest of the vineyard, 150 hectares in one shot. Wow. So if they're able to convert 150 hectares in one shot to organic, I think that's a really good argument against the people who say that that organic doesn't work for medium or large-sized wineries. It's really only something that, that is good for small wineries. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think it's definitely a question of will. And uh, to convert 150 hectares in one shot, it's a question of money, no matter what. Yes, uh, it, it it takes a lot of work and a lot of money to convert that much of a land in in one shot. Absolutely, and a lot of just manpower and time and effort because um, it's what, I, I imagine you know a lot of people in Prosecco are probably machine harvesting and to to work organically. And I'm not sure if this is the case for, for your producer. It's very hard to do that. You can. It's almost impossible to work organically into do the machine harvesting in the in the vineyards because the machines just 
bust everything up. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know how they uh, how are they they're planning on working for the harvest mm-hmm. yet um, f- when everything is going to be converted. Uh, we're talking about it right now, um, but I will sure keep you posted on that. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I I wouldn't think like, I know you go into your into ten bells and and in your shop, and I see you know you, the, the wines that you currently you know you'd worked with in the past were kind of more off the beaten path, um, small little pockets of the Loire or the Jura or um, places that you know are are not as as well known as the most famous wines. Uh, um, but I, I wouldn't think that your first foray into Italy would be uh, in Prosecco. Uh, but where, where else are you excited? Are there other regions of, of the world that, that you're excited about that you'd really love to, uh, to work with some wines? Um, there, there are many. I mean, all the uh, Eastern European uh, side, you know, Slovenia, Croatia, Hungary, all, all these countries definitely have... Uh, Tons of very interesting wine, um, a, a, a very long um, history in winemaking, um, and it's something that we see in New York. I mean, these yeah. wines are are getting more and more attention these days. There's more and more companies that are focusing on the, on this kind of wine from this region. Um, for, for me, I I don't know if I really want to um, explore that many. Uh, I think it's better to just maybe focus on one or two countries and and get really on top of your game in in, in this country rather than trying to do to to spread yourself a little too much and and maybe miss opportunities then yeah so what is the major what what is your day like these days uh how how do you spend it and what's the life of an importer who's now distributing wine like well it's waking up pretty early in the morning uh usually around six um, so that allows you to get all your email from France because it's noon at the time over there. So you can. So un- they're just getting to work at that time as well. They're, they're <laughs> just getting to work as well. <laughs> they just finished breakfast. Um, so that allows you to uh, give you a few phone calls, um, answer a bunch of emails, um, and then you get into all the paperwork mm-hmm. that comes with the that kind of business, all the issues with TTBs to get labeled approved and do price posting and uh, get your orders in and uh, transmit your orders to uh, to the distributor and get in touch with your customers and take apartments to go to go pe- to go taste people on wines. Wow, it's a it's, sexy part of the business for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> very different especially, especially in winter with those beautiful freezing temperature oh my goodness so a complete different change in your lifestyle though from just a few years ago and and when you were spending some late nights at the 10 bells oh yeah much better now much better now. i have a life now i have a life the restaurant business it's a nice thing uh maybe when you're younger i would say because it's uh, seven days a week from early morning to late at night uh gig so at, at one point it gets really exhausting and I'm, I'm really glad and thrilled that I'm not in that business anymore yeah and how do you think that people's perceptions have changed toward from the the first years when you were so excited about natural wines to when you're bringing them out now is it has it been a, a dramatic change I feel like it has but uh, you're, you're you've been there since uh, the beginning trying to talk about these wines um, not the beginning. Uh, there was a bunch of people before me who yes. inspired me 
um, but the, natural natural wine gets more attention. Definitely, um, people get more open to it. Um, some people do really want to understand it and why it's done this way. Um, you know, there's more and more conscious about you know what's going on in the world and uh, all the the, the chemicals uh, issues and the health issues. Um, so I, I think pe people are very aware about what they eat mm -hmm. and, and pay more attention to it. So it's kind of a natural way to pay attention to what you drink as well. That that's something that I would always say when people ask me like why why do you drink natural wines? The answer would be because I'm. Uh, very, I want to be aware of what I put in my body in large quantities. Do you ever bring wines to someone who is uh, not open to the idea of natural wines, or are you generally making the appointments that you make? You know that someone is is receptive to these because there still are people in the industry who very much feel like the, that natural wine is a gimmick or is uh, is a fad of some sort. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't know. Um, I, I always uh, emphasize the fact that the, the wine that I that I bring, that I carry, that I stand for, are, um, are natural wines. Um, but you know, I, I was people change. Uh, at the beginning, for me, the very first time that I tried natural wines, my thoughts were like, well, "What? What is that? You know, what, what's the interest? What, what's the what's the whole story behind that?" I, I didn't care much about it. So um, you have to give credit to everybody, and uh, it takes time to change mind, and uh, and people do change their mind at one point. Yeah, and it must be that the first time you had it, maybe it wasn't a great. Just like in the, in more conventional wines, there are really well made conventional wines, and there there are really poorly made ones. In, in natural wine, I guess it's it's the same thing. When it you is. had that Foyard Morgon Cote de Pie, it was, wow, not only is this natural, but it's really well made. And the two of those things together make an even greater experience than uh, than before. But if you have one that is, you know, so so it's probably like the, the early natural wines that came were, uh, that came and were imported to the States were similar to the uh, Maybe the the early like organic carrots at the supermarket where they just kind of looked not as nice as the <laughs> you know they're they're yeah. kind of wonky. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I mean for sure at, at the very beginning. So at, at Perpignan, I would carry um, natural wine that sometime where th those wines would have all the flaws that you can think about. Yeah. But at the time for me, it was hey, that's natural wine. That's the way it is. Now I know you like to work with wines that have very low or no sulfites. Um, as someone who's an importer who now has to uh, buy these wines and ship them and be responsible for a, for a large amount of wine uh, throughout the process, has your opinion on, on sulfur remained the same and, sted, and steadfast? What, what do you think is, uh, is appropriate? Uh, can, can people ship wines without added sulfites over long distance and then remain stable? Yeah, they, they 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 can. I mean, we have some uh, some examples um, f of wine that are shipped all over the world with no sulfites, and that on top of it can um, last for years before being open and, mm. and drinking, and that are still fresh and vibrant and good after many 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 years. So my my opinion definitely stands. 
Okay. And so where are some places around town that, why don't we give uh, a little shout out to some of your customers, uh, some places around town where people can uh, either drink or, or buy some of your some of your wines? Oh, well, so you, you can find some at Ten Bells. Um, um, we have this uh, new natural wine bar in uh, Brooklyn called June. In Carroll Garden. Uh, in Carroll Garden on Court Street. That is really nice. That carries a bunch of those wines. Um, you can buy some at Chamber Street. Um, Discovery Wine in the city also uh, carries a few of them. Um, if you feel adventurous and go to the Upper West Side, um, you can go to Dovetail, which is a very great underrated restaurant in the city. What an outstanding restaurant. It's beautiful. O- overrated, like big time. Um, uh, you can, if you feel uh, being on a weekend and go upstate New York, you can go to uh, uh, Fish and Game yes. as well in Hudson. I went recently, had some re- they have a great wine list there. They do. A beautiful, the setting, a big, beautiful open hearth in the fireplace, and the, it's just a beautiful place. It, it, it's a really nice place. Yeah. Really, All right. really cool. And we're going to have our first tasting appointment, I think, this Thursday. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. So maybe after that, and I, you know, you can taste through the wines together, you might be able to find them at, at Amphora as well. Cross fingers. Cross fingers. Fifi, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. You've been someone uh, I've looked up to for, for a while, and uh, I've certainly had many outstanding experiences at 10 bells and have been a customer at passage and uh i i am absolutely excited to, that you've been on the show today well thanks joe for having me all right and thanks to all of you for listening this has been in the drink on heritage radio network.org thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio network.org You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.